0: uh do you want to um do an introduction uh as far as like you know i'm i'm met and i'm proving and this is occasionally blah, blah 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 you know
1: honestly maybe maybe the intro should be like well we're going to do the intro right now but it's kind of campy so we're just going to get into it you know
0: it's not a bad idea we could just make this entire thing our intro
1: right i uh, maybe we should <laughs> okay there you go <laughs>
0: that yeah basically this should just start with we're going to talk about some news items and uh they're not going to be in any particular order necessarily they're just some of the news items we thought were interesting this week Right. and suvin is gonna give us our first news item
1: so i'm going to start with the magnetic wormhole news story you probably saw on facebook or read over the internet i'll give a quick intro to it this whole idea about wormholes comes from the good doctor einstein and dr rosen um basically you ever hear of einstein rosen bridges or remember like the movie thor those were kind of like the wormhole idea or at least the fantasized version of it so the actual theorized wormholes are way too small to teleport you or me or anything more than just electrons and you know quantum particles but they're mathematically possible so and and when when you say
0: uh too small we're talking really really small like like femtometers wide which is really really small yeah
1: and for those of you who don't know what a femtometer is that's just a fancy way of saying you're not getting teleported anytime soon so i don't know read that book by michael cranton was a timeline read that book that's how you get teleported you know (laughs) Because that's highly,
0: magic. highly, highly accurate representation of okay. both teleportation and time travel. Yeah,
1: because that's how you time travel too. But anyways, we digress. <laughs> so back to this magnetic wormhole. So you know, I'll, I'll, i I'll, I'll diverge a little bit here and just say, you know, not until starting this whole podcast idea with you did I really kind of figure out how half-assed. Can I say half-assed? I'm You can half-assed. you can try if if we need to we'll bleep you later. Okay, well you might have to. So how half-assed a lot of these like science stories are, because as I was reading through this article and doing research on this part, I found out this isn't a wormhole. And and for my own science background, I know this isn't a wormhole. So in an article I read, it's basically this idea is standing on the shoulders of a 2007 discovery. Or, implication, I could say that there's a possibility of, and they quoted this invisibility cloak. Okay, this is some real Harry Potter stuff here, guys, so keep up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Basically, it it just means that you won't be able to detect a certain field or transmission of particles. Um, That doesn't mean they don't exist. It doesn't even mean that they really warped or teleported. It just means that we didn't detect them for a while. So, I'll get into yeah. It it might be
0: it might be uh, good for people's keyword recognition to know that this is more about uh, metamaterials than it is about an actual wormhole. This is this is a, a bending of the 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 way that we detect something. It's not an actual tunneling through space
1: time right and even when it says magnetic wormhole well maybe information can be transmitted no it's not even that it's similar to a magnetic version of fiber optics which i'm going to get into later and, and you might understand it from there but um you also have to understand as the listener that people are going to say things to you throughout your life to try to sell you things check out this great new brand new car you know it's brand used you know uh barely driven just ten thousand miles but it's just like new. it's like yeah but it's a used car you're buying you know same thing with this magnetic wormhole people think they're going to start teleporting and stuff not really so just take things with the grain of salt people so back onto this magnetic wormhole it's basically a three-layer cylinder the inner layer is the one that creates this magnetic field Um, and this is all in superconducting material like suspended in liquid nitrogen to make it work the second layer bends the field. So if you have like a magnetic field, it's like this little, you know, if you look inside a high school physics book, you'll see like these little lines coming out of a tube. That looks kind of like a circle surrounding it. So the second layer kind of bends the field and changes its, uh, what's it called? It's like a magnetic moment. Basically just changes the vector of the magnetic field over a little bit. Now the final layer is 150 pieces cut and angled in the right way to rebend this magnetic field to create this invisibility cloak. In this way, it bends the magnetic field so hard that it doesn't radiate out as you might expect, but it's only shown on the entrance and the exit of the tube. Um, so it is just like fiber optics. The way fiber optics works is that this cable basically a beam of light is shot through a cable and it keeps bouncing along this cable inside the cable until it gets to the other end where it's then read and digitized and, you know, you get internet
0: magic. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's really not that the magnetic field is disappearing from space-time in one place and reappearing somewhere else. This is much more a case where powerful magnets are being used to bend the existing magnetic field into a coherent stream and then shielding the, uh, the field itself in a way that you can't detect it where it has become coherent. So you're seeing normal magnetic poles on either end of this coherent magnetic stream, but you, you, you don't have a, a disconnect between the two poles. These are not, we haven't suddenly created magnetic monopoles separate from one another uh, this is just uh, an illusion, really. This is just tricky metamaterials shielding your ability to detect the coherent magnetic field between those two points.
1: It's the appearance. It's the appearance of of what you're saying of two monopoles away from each other. Now, this isn't to um, belittle the work done here because there is, you know, viable use of this in like MRI machines and stuff because y- you can have instead of being thrown into this huge bulky MRI machine for basically convenience and comfortability. You can have the MRI machine way somewhere else and just collect the information in one end, you know, comfortably you sitting down or laying down on a doctor's office and the information will go through the machine at another end. Um, Now this is gonna be far, far in the future because as of right now, superconducting materials like this cost way more than it's worth than just shove somebody into a MRI machine. But
0: <laughs> I I'd also like to point out because I, I read that in a couple of the review articles that this yeah. um this this application for this technology that's most most promising is in reducing the you know claustrophobic nature of an MRI machine, essentially extending the distance between the target and the sensors using these you know quote unquote uh, wormholes to 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 move the the sensor away from the the target, but. It, it doesn't really make sense because, again, they're having to use superconducting magnets to hide this coherent magnetic stream. And magnets are also big, bulky objects. So even if you've moved the MRI machine, you know, uh, 10 feet away from the patient, you've still got this huge apparatus of bulky superconducting magnets to make this coherent field. To me, it doesn't seem like it's really going to change anything.
1: Well, maybe Eli...
0: Right. I understand what they're, you know, trying to say when they suggest that this is a, a possible use for the technology, but I don't see how it's really feasible without suddenly, you know, making enormous leaps and bounds in superconductive magnet technology, if we, if we could create transparent magnets or something.
1: Well, like I was trying to say, maybe Elon, Elon Musk can make an autonomous, you know, AI robot to do it for us, and then there you go, right? Sure, let's let's
0: offload our our discoveries to an AI. We'll, yeah. we'll let the singularity take care of this one.
1: Yeah, let's the Terminator handle it, you know. So on that note, we'll move uh, on to Matt's uh, science story of the <laughs> week. Uh, here he goes.
0: Yeah, so this one is another uh, really big story that's been in Facebook and Reddit and all over the internet. Um, and there's actually been two stories that are are, are really similar, but I think that this one is a bit more poignant, a bit easier to talk about. Um, You might've read about scientists creating a complete human brain inside of a Petri dish, building an entire brain from stem cells. (laughs) So so the claim here is that um, essentially these scientists over, at, uh, what was this, the uh, Ohio State University? I don't know, man, managed...
1: you told me. <laughs> yeah,
0: so it is. It is the Ohio State <laughs> University. Um, these researchers, uh, whose names I won't even attempt to, to, to butcher on here. Uh, I think they're Russian. They're, they're difficult names, to say the least. And you can look up their names so that I don't have to <laughs> embarrass us by trying to say them. Um, these, these researchers are claiming that they have essentially created from stem cells from the ground up in a Petri dish, a, a model of the human brain, which resembles uh, a, an organically normally grown human brain uh, in a five week old fetus. So what they've essentially done is taken all of the different portions of the brain that we can normally grow with stem cells, put it all together and are claiming that they now have a, a first-step model to creating a human brain in a dish, which is fantastic-sounding from the get-go. But as with most of these, you know, fantastical-sounding science stories, I'm a little bit skeptical of this one. I, I really am. People have blown it way out of proportion, and um, I think that it's important to really look at what these researchers have said and done so far. Um, The first thing that I'd like to point out is that they haven't published anything yet. So this is not peer-reviewed work. Um, The only thing that they've done is shown a poster, which I don't know if um, everybody in the audience knows what a poster is, but essentially uh, this is a a researcher term. Academics do grown-up science fairs. So you go to a conference, and you remember those tri-fold science fair posters you made when you were in elementary school? Sure. Real-life scientists still make those, and then you go and you wander around a convention hall, and you can see other, um, you know, your peers in the field. You can see their posters, what they're currently working on, Uh, and this allows them to make connections with other scientists who are working on similar things. You can find collaborators for your projects. It's also a really good time to demonstrate the worth of your research so that you can attempt to get more grant money. And drink so, for free. And, and, of course, drink <laughs> for free because that's what <laughs> conventions are about, uh, but only in the after hours.
1: <laughs>
0: so, so essentially, again, these are not peer-reviewed results. This is just a poster that they've had at a convention. They were wildly popular at this convention, and this is why the news story has spread so quickly. Um, growing a complete human brain in a Petri dish provides the opportunity to study a lot of really, you know, complex neurological disorders and diseases. Um, The big ones they've been talking about on the internet are things like autism and Alzheimer's and, you know, any, anything like that. It's really a, a, a moot point. I mean, if you have a brain in a dish, you can study literally anything about the brain you want, whether it's disease or Anything else? That's the point of it. That's why it would be so exciting. Um, but again, they have no peer-reviewed research. All they've had to show us is a poster, which is generally something that you 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 are not certain about. No one else has verified this. You don't have all your data yet.
1: I thought it was. I thought you were going to say generally, it's something you do in fifth grade. <laughs> Fifth grade as
0: well. It's it's essentially the same kind of a thing. It's not taken as seriously as peer-reviewed science, and that's really the key here. Um, there's also a couple of other red flags about these guys that are kind of, kind of, kind of worrying. Um, the pair of researchers who came up with the method, which they haven't published again because they don't have to. They all they've had to do is make a poster. Um, they are waiting to publish this until they have patented the method that they've come up with to grow these brains in a dish that on its face sounds a bit like their academics moving from the academic uh realm to an entrepreneurial realm Mm. to back up that red flag they're also very recently as of their popularity now founding a startup called nurex stem (laughs) Um, <laughs> which again, big red flag that these guys have used some very, um, you know, preliminary results with a really splashy headline and are moving now into the, uh, realm where they're looking for, uh, in my opinion, they're looking for money to either do more research or to buy a boat or whatever it is, you know, that people look for money for.
1: Imagine if, let's say, A scientist like Jonas Salk did a startup. Oh, how poignant. (laughs) Uh, For everyone who hasn't read our
0: um, about section, I work at the Salk Institute, uh, which was founded by Jonas Salk, creator of the polio vaccine that helped rid the world of polio.
1: And I used to live next door to him. so. So now you guys know. Now you've got the whole
0: backstory. Um, but yeah I think that it's uh, it's it's a great first start if we could grow full brains like this in a dish it would be really important for a lot of neuroscience research including my own research I I do neuroscience research that's why I'm talking about this story Um, I specifically do structural uh, systems neuroscience I'm an anatomy guy I look at how neurons are connected to one another and to do that we do have to use uh, animals which is not ideal, both for ethical reasons and for just practical reasons. If I could grow these brains in a dish, it would be much, much simpler for me and for everyone involved. Um, But right now, uh, a brain grown in a dish does not resemble a natural live brain for the reasons that the brain has never had to think and walk around and look for food and feel tired. It just, it doesn't have any of the experience. So we don't know that it resembles an actual brain. That's another big problem with the news headlines that have been coming out over this story. They are really claiming the, uh, you know, brain in a dish 1950s horror flick where this brain is suddenly a, a, a cognizant entity. It's not, I mean, these, these stem cell brains that they're growing don't even have blood vessels. That's how primitive they are. Wow.
1: I was gonna say, where do you plug the heart into this to get the blood going? Uh, and <laughs> you have an interesting point because I was gonna ask you about this, knowing that, you know, basically I kind of, in, in the notes I wrote to this to you, I said, and another ramification of this is that might, might lose his job. So I know this is very, you know, spot on to what you're doing. That's why I kind of gave this one to you too. Um, yeah to kind, of ask, to kind of ask this question like i know that everybody's brains is actually physically different than somebody else's i mean the way the little i don't know the scientific term of it but you know the crinkles in your brain and stuff things are all kind of put in different places and um depending on somebody's lifestyle or what their environment um it can also alter their brain chemistry and their brain structure so i mean uh, uh, Brain grown dish, would that even be helpful? Let's, let's just assume this goes to full term 50 years from now or sooner. And we're growing brains in dishes. I mean, would that even be viable in that sense for drug testing or research?
0: That's actually a really good question. Um, I think that down the road, eventually one day, it might be um, useful. But I think that it suffers a really fatal flaw one of the things that you've just mentioned is that everyone's brain is a little bit different. I don't think it's as different as a lot of people think it might be kind of like saying everybody's body is different. Uh, That, that is, you know, clearly the case because different people are different people, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the same major organs and organ systems. Everyone's, you know, physiology is pretty much the same. Your DNA isn't even that different than your neighbor's DNA. I mean, down to so a genetic either. level. We're very similar. So even the, even the structure of your brain is not very different from anyone else's. Uh, the major differences are going to be on a very, very small scale. So synapse level, you'll have different connections between your neurons. You'll have different um, organization with your glia, which we're starting to understand are probably more important for memory and learning than we thought before so it's you know it's it's true that everyone is different but we are very very similar the differences are not very great now with that in mind the problem with growing a brain in the dish and using that to model a natural brain stems from just the sort of rationality behind it so a good way to think about this is Uh, there are a lot of programs meant to model brains. And we use those to do research as well. One of the most famous examples of this is a program called Monte Carlo Cell, which is actually also developed by uh, some of the Salk researchers downstairs from me. This is software that runs on the supercomputer over at UCSD, And it models the synapse between two neurons down to, uh, you know, neurotransmitters and polypeptides and surface proteins. And what they're doing is trying to create an artificial model of a synapse. So you don't have to use a living model, which is amazing, which is fantastic. But the problem is you are building a thing as well as you understand it. So it becomes increasingly difficult to find something new and novel in a system where you have built everything to work the way you think it works. Right. So if we're building a brain from the ground up, how do we know that it's going to work the same way as a natural brain if we don't understand the way that a natural brain works? We do to a certain extent, a very limited extent. But I think that, you know, assuming that we can create a system from stem cells uh, and assuming that that system will act like a natural brain is, is flawed in its, in its sort of reverse logic.
1: Is it almost like programming a new version of Windows by, let's say I'm running a Windows 7 operating system and I buy um, the tower for Windows 10 and only using Windows 7 and this motherboard for Windows 10 that I can't even plug in. I need to go engineer Windows 10. Is it something similar to that? That's a, a complex metaphor.
0: I think I have a. a, a let's imagine uh, we knew nothing about horses. We just we had we had found horses in the wild. We know <laughs> nothing about them, okay. and they just <laughs> they just run around. And we think, all right, it's great. Let's study horses. Um, now. Imagine that we build a model of a horse that is, you know, just robotic. We build a robot horse. It runs around. It looks like a horse and it runs into the whinnying and the neighing and things like that. Um, but you don't know what else a horse can do. Uh, you know, your robot horse will never know the way that a, a regular horse coordinates its legs <laughs> to jump over an object unless you've, already understood how a horse jumps and programmed that into your robot do you see do you see what i mean here it where no our model can't
1: <laughs> sorry this whole thing is just as funny from the beginning i mean it went from like the neolithic age of mm, seahorse run to let's build a robotic horse like it's i like it i like it keep going it's just <laughs> i kind of tickled oh. me right <laughs> all
0: right but but you 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 get the idea here that our model can't do anything unexpected useless to discover something new okay it's time for a short break from our podcast we really appreciate you guys listening this far and this is where we're going to plug you with an advertisement i'm sorry for that the product that we wanted to share with you guys today is called Usenet Server. Uh, Suvin and I both like Usenet quite a bit, and Usenet Server is one of the best servers out there. They offer a 14-day free trial, and they have over 3,000 days of retention and 99% completion. If you know anything about Usenet servers, that is a pretty great statistic. They've also got deals on a, uh, an unlimited VPN, which I use quite regularly because VPNs are important in this day and age of internet privacy. Um, Usenet Server, check them out at usenetserver.com. You can use our discount code from another one of our older projects called Hobo Geek. So if you sign up for a recurring account with the uh, code HoboGeek, you will go ahead and get yourself a little bit of a discount. And you'll help us keep things running here at Occasionally Thinking, as well as our old site, Geek. So we appreciate you taking the time to not skip this ad. We'll get right back into the podcast.
1: All right, so where are we? What are we talking about? Um, we were talking about the horses, so maybe that's a good thing because I started laughing really hard. That was a really funny analogy, dude. I mean, <laughs> it was funny, you are know, like, you know, let's pretend we just ran into horses. I'm kind of imagining, like, us as Native Americans out in the American plains. And then you're like, and then we'll model a horse. I'm like, oh, cool, like cave paintings? Nope, we're going to build a full, like, robotic horse, you know? It's like, what? Where does this... <laughs>
0: Um, cave paintings works as well, though. I mean, that is a simple kind of model. If you were looking at just a cave painting and it didn't describe anything about, you know, a horse that you hadn't written down, you'd never learn anything new about horses. That's the point with models. Right. So that word is a bit generic. It can be useful um, to describe a model that does help us understand something, and it can be useful to describe just the current understanding we have. So don't be... Uh, tripped up by the
1: semantics of the word model right yeah all right well um let's see here so i think that kind of ran that course on the petri dish brain um i like how we touched on a lot of different ideas you know from the limits of modeling and um yeah, so I think maybe next week I'll do something on. I'm thinking about like the large, hard hadron collider.
0: <laughs> Common Freudian slip.
1: Yeah, right. So something like that, and, and and talk about how that's just a grand scale model, and maybe it has its own limitations. So maybe, uh, the next podcast we do, I'll do something on that, and wait for a story. But um. Yeah. There's a couple of interesting
0: ones um, that I might want to do, too. There's uh, the the other interesting story in the news is that um, they've created a a neural network. Yeah. um, A piece of of software slash hardware that is a neural network that is supposedly complex enough to um, uh, essentially mimic the human brain, which which again is garbage, is nonsense, uh, but it makes for a great headline. Yeah, it's massively misleading. All right, and for our last segment, we're going to go ahead and talk about some of our favorite scientists that we think are important, that people should know about, maybe a little bit of the history surrounding them, uh, and we'll see how it goes. This is the first time we're doing this segment, so bear with us. I think we're going to get started with Subin, Uh, talking about his scientist this week. I have no idea who he's going to talk about. Um, I didn't come prepared this week with my own, so we're just going to do the one this time, but let's have Suvin get us started with his scientist.
1: Just as a preface, I did give Matt Jonas Salk, and that's kind of why I gave that little Jonas Salk quip earlier on in the segment, but um, That's all right. Salk's kind of a big deal. I would have loved to do an entire podcast from just him. So without further ado, I will go on with my scientist of the week. You may know him as Roy Hinckley. He is a high school science teacher, better known as the professor. That's right. The professor from Gilligan's Island. That's the scientist of the week, ladies and gentlemen. And using coconuts and bamboo, he was able to create wonderful apparatuses like radios and long-range radar systems but like many people contested he couldn't even fix a boat now i'll defend that because i can do a lot of cool stuff but i can't really fix a boat i can't even swim so i'll give him that as a break um but yeah turns out he was a high school science teacher and his whole purpose on that voyage was to write a book to be titled fun with ferns So it's almost like Sheldon's clip, Fun with Flags. You know, it just the same joke repeats over and over again. But yeah, Fun with Ferns is the whole reason why the professor was on Gilligan's Island. This I kind of chose as a fun first one. So it's a little bit of a lighthearted thing. It was easy to do research on. And there isn't some deep sort of connection on how he influenced the world or anything. No, it's just some guy who couldn't fix a freaking boat. You know what I mean? So... (laughs) I'm, I'm not gonna
0: lie that was unexpected I didn't I didn't expect the professor from Gilligan's Island to be the first <laughs> first famous scientist we we showcase on our on our podcast um, uh, allow me to add some some depth to the professor from Gilligan's Island here for you since, since you don't have any there um, I do think it is actually a fairly a fairly poignant um, uh first first example of a scientist because as you pointed out he was uh, a high school teacher he wasn't necessarily the uh, stereotypical lab coat shirt and tie scientist working in a, a, a lab bench hmm. and I think it's important for people to remember that as long as they are thinking about the world in a scientific manner uh, going about things logically and testing their own beliefs that it's 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 absolutely reasonable to think of anybody as a scientist. They don't have to be, you know, a PhD in something uh, particular. They don't have to wear the lab coat and have goggles and gloves and things like that. As long as you're exploring the world and trying to make sense of it in a way that is reproducible, uh, following what we like to, you know, call the scientific method, then everybody can be a scientist. It's not a special club. I think that using a tremendously famous TV character is a great way to point that out to people.
1: You know, that's a lot deeper than I thought. I just thought about this, uh, I want to say a couple months ago when we started thinking about doing this whole podcast thing. And I thought, you know, it'd be really funny if I secretly put in like the professor as one of the scientists that we like cover, you know what I mean? I wonder if Matt would laugh because I know you and I have had personal discussions about various things one including the professor and how he doesn't know how to fix a boat but he can make bamboo and stuff uh, bamboo radios and stuff excuse me and um so i thought it'd be nice you know another thing i liked about the professor if i can get deep for a moment is that he was more than just a scientist i mean he was very well read um, he was a classy guy and maybe it was just a sign of the times it being the 60s but i kind of like to think that the word scientist is so much more powerful than people think and, and like you said it's more than just that nerdy kid who has a lab coat on I mean there's, there's a reason why it's called social sciences. Um, you can be a scientist in anything in any aspect of the word as long as like you said you just follow some simple steps you intelligently observe the world around you and you think of about it in a critical way and you use these This knowledge that you gain in a positive way for society, and and that's another thing that would have been nice if we talked about Jonas Salk and his research in polio and how he, you know, didn't patent it and basically gave the world a free vaccine. Um, It's kind of, it's kind of nice to see that. Whole aspect of how you know it, it's meant to do the right thing you know you can be that evil scientist or you could just be like the professor and you know make a couple radios to have people just a little bit more comfortable in this terrible situation they're in okay well thanks for joining us for our inaugural podcast hopefully we won't say as many ums or stutter or bad jokes uh, in the next one
0: yeah and hopefully when i do the post-processing on this it doesn't turn out completely terrible if it sounds super unnatural I apologize for being bad at having. I promise (laughs) I'm good at neuroscience though.